Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Welcome everyone to episode 53 of True Blue Crime. My name's Sean and with me as always is my co-host Chloe. How are you today? I am, I'm going to say I'm okay. I live in Victoria and we are in a time, so I'm not going to say good, but I'm here and I am looking forward to going through this case. Yeah, uh, the place to be apparently, according to our, uh, I don't know if the number plates still say that. We were on the move. Which, uh, you know, we can't, uh, we're not, we're neither of those things now on the move or the place to be. (laughs) Oh, that's true. (laughs) We might have to go back to the garden state. It'd be a pretty shit garden, though. Like, maybe that's all we can do, right? Like, yeah, (laughs) walk and and be in our garden. So that makes sense. That works quite well. That's it. That's it. But look, we will leave that to one side today and we will, uh, we'll hop into the case because we've got a good one to cover today. Uh, But before we get to that, we've got some more Patreon shout outs this week, Chloe. We do. Thank you so much and welcome to Dicko, Tammy, Noreen Mitchell, Meza Buckley, Tanisha Hine, Jackie Allen and Janine Hines. And one of those is my mum. So thanks, mum. Thank you, everyone, for your support. It's uh, much appreciated. And today we're talking about Herman Rockefeller. This is a very popular case we've been requested to cover a number of times and it has all those interesting elements. I heard uh, an interview with author Hilary Bonney, who wrote a book about this case, which um, we've used in research, and they asked her why this case, why she wrote about this, and I think her answer pretty much sums up the interest around the case. It's very intriguing, and it involves both sex and death, which tends to fire up everyone's imagination. I'd add money to the fold there too, Chloe, and probably status as contributing points to the general public's fascination around this case. Some will know the basics of this story, perhaps not all the details, and some might know it at all. So we're going to try and tell it with as much of that mystery as we can, following the investigation and how it all unfolded in real time. As we said, this case has a number of fascinating aspects, quite explicit and graphic aspects too, including the little soundscape intros we do close. So that's your content warning, folks. If any of these aspects make you squeamish, you know, use your skip button at will or even give this one a miss altogether because we're going to dive straight into the often dark and secretive world of a specific sexual proclivity here, swinging and voyeurism. 
December 2009. Andy Kingston arrived at 125 South Street in the middle of the day, overcome by insatiable lust. Bernadette and Mario in Unit 2 invited him inside, expecting a visit from the guy they'd spoken to over the phone a number of times now. He was alone. Jenny, his wife, wasn't with him. Andy explained that she couldn't be there this time, but next time she would be. He'd told her about them and she was excited. He looked nice to both Bernadette and Mario, this Andy Kingston, well-dressed, in good shape, a friendly guy. Mario was happy to get things underway, to watch this time, as Andy and Bernadette had sex in the lounge room. Andy notioned for Mario to become involved, but Mario was happy to just watch this one. He'd get his when Jenny came the next time they met. Andy had a shower and then left, promising to send some photos of Jenny through. Herman Rockefeller was born on the 25th of January 1958 in Akron, Ohio, USA. He was the eldest of three children to Herman Sr. and Edith Rockefeller, and he had two younger brothers named Charles and Robert. Up front, we should clear up any notion that these Rockefellers are related to the famous billionaire Rockefeller dynasty that's also from the States and very famous. While they share a surname, it's always been maintained by the family that they are not related at all. Herman Sr. was a baker in the US, but the family moved to Australia and settled in sunny Geelong. Herman Jr., who we'll simply refer to as Herman from now on, went to school at Geelong College with his brothers. He was ducks of his class at the end of high school and got accepted into law school at the University of Melbourne. Herman graduated in 1982 and shortly after moved back to his country of birth to attend Harvard Business School. He then came back to Australia upon completion of these further studies and worked for a number of blue chip companies such as James Hardy and Vizzy. He was clearly a smart cookie, Herman, as were his brothers, and he got into share trading around this time and began to regularly use a computer in his business ventures, something that wasn't commonplace at this time. Herman moved to New Zealand for a stretch after this, and this was because he was working for a company called Brearley Investments, who were situated there. He'd go on to become CFO of Brearley and formed a number of strong influential business relationships during his time in New Zealand including a friendship with former Prime Minister John Keyes. But the defining relationship Herman would start across the ditch would be with a woman named Vicky Lawson. She worked for Brealey too, and the pair hit it off. Their friendship blossomed into romance and later marriage in 1990. Herman and Vicky would go on to have their two children in New Zealand, a daughter and a son. The family would eventually move back to Australia after Herman moved into business ventures of his own with his family. They settled in a home on Finch Street, East Malvern, an affluent suburb in Melbourne's inner eastern suburbs. Herman travelled a lot as director of his family-owned investment company, Nelson Proprietary Limited. There were two subsidiaries of this company, Booktel Proprietary Limited and Necon Proprietary Limited, each of which owned a shopping centre. The company's head office was in Hobart, where one of Herman's brothers lived with his family. 
Herman travelled there for two to three days at a time when required, otherwise he worked from home and Vicky worked alongside him in the same office for the business too. Herman was an intelligent man, clearly. It was said his net worth at the time in 2010 when this tale begins was around $400 million. He was fit, he'd run and exercise daily, but at heart he was a family man, heavily involved with his local church, and he was a mild-mannered, decent and modest man by all reports. That's why on the 21st of January 2010, Vicky Rockefeller became extremely concerned sick with worry when Herman didn't return home from his business trip as planned. Herman and Vicky spoke regularly throughout the day, every day, and this evening, as he departed from a connecting Brisbane flight to head home to Melbourne, Herman had texted Vicky to say his plane was delayed by about an hour and he'd be home around about quarter past 11 that evening. Vicky waited and waited and nothing. She called him, nothing, no answer on his phone. When it got past 12am, she phoned the police and reported him missing. Now, while that might seem like a quick jump, like maybe, you know, his car had broken down or something simple like that, Herman's meticulous nature was something that was missing in this scenario. It wasn't like him to drop off the radar, to stop for a nightcap on the way home or something without telling a member of his family. Now, this was a guy who kept a busy and detailed business schedule. It was completely out of character. The other big factor here which police had to consider upon getting the report from Vicky was Herman Rockefeller's status. Not that he was a celebrity or anything, as we said, they were quite modest and low-key really in the context of where and how they lived versus the money they were worth, but police had to think about something to do with the revenge or a business dealing that had gone sour, or even the possibility that the name alone, Rockefeller, Maybe someone had kidnapped him believing he was related to the US Rockefellers. As the hours went on and police questioned Vicky and Herman's brothers, running the gamut of possibilities such as voluntary disappearance or genuine accidents, etc., it became more and more likely that Herman had vanished at the hands of a third party, not of his own accord. Police checked arrivals at Tullamarine Airport and learned that Herman had caught a slightly earlier flight than what he told his wife Vicky. He'd touched down around 9.25pm, about an hour earlier than what he'd said. CCTV showed him walking through the airport with a bag containing six grapefruit he'd gotten from a roadside fruit stall, Harris Farms. He had his luggage and a laptop bag as well. The next movements police were able to trace were Herman leaving the airport car park in his light blue Toyota Prius, paying by card at the boom gate. From here, Herman Rockefeller, the 51-year-old husband, father, millionaire property investor, had simply vanished. It was anyone's guess where he was, but police's strong suspicion was it wasn't voluntary on his behalf. 72 hours passed and police didn't have a single concrete lead as to where Herman might be. They encouraged Vicky, a quiet woman by nature, to come forward and appeal to the public for assistance. Someone must have seen something. Vicky went on ABC radio and spoke with John Fain. She told much of the information we covered earlier about Herman, his personality, his work life, that there were no disputes or conflicts. She heard his conversations as they worked so closely together. There was no secret life. His disappearance was a complete mystery and immensely stressful for Vicky Rockefeller. Vicky and Herman's brother Robert also pleaded to the public for information on national television. Good evening. The wife of an East Malvern businessman says she's baffled by his sudden disappearance. 
Multi-millionaire property investor Herman Rockefeller was last seen at Melbourne Airport last Thursday. Melanie Davies is there and Mel, what can you tell us? Alicia, police say footage from Melbourne Airport security cameras show Herman Rockefeller leaving the terminal, walking to his car, paying via credit card and exiting the long-term car park. But they have nothing beyond that point. He was supposed to be heading home from Melbourne East, but his car didn't register on CityLink and he hasn't used his mobile phone or accessed bank accounts. 51-year-old Herman Rockefeller has been missing for nearly 72 hours. Absolutely baffling. There's just nothing. And that's why we just have to appeal to the public to look for that car and for him. The wealthy businessman and father of two teenage children arrived home in Melbourne around 9pm on Thursday after spending four days in New South Wales with his business partner and brother Robert. He flew home alone on a Virgin Blue flight from Newcastle via Brisbane. I wished him well for his birthday, which is tomorrow, uh, where he turns 52. During the trip, he received news his 18-year-old daughter had been accepted into medicine. And in fact, when he heard the news on Monday afternoon, he started crying in this meeting. He told his wife in a final text message on Thursday he was excited about coming home. After he leaves Tullamarine, we've, we're at a loss to what happens at all. We've got no real theories at all. Police want to hear from anyone who may have seen Herman's car. A light blue 2007 Toyota Prius, registration UUP682. We've got no other avenues to go down. I mean, the police have been absolutely fantastic, but it's just nothing. It's nothing. You just can't imagine what it's like. It's, it's just unbearable. Melanie Davies, Nine News. One of the key pieces of information police were hoping for was a sighting of Herman's car, the blue Prius, registration UUP682. On these many media calls, TV and radio, the car was definitely a focus, and these pleas led to the police receiving the following phone call. Craig Smith from... Um, yeah, I've just listened uh, to the radio and heard you're looking for a blue Toyota Prius. I think it might be out there in Carween Lane, out near Des Conroy's. And it's down there about three or four hundred metres. It's still there, still there last Sunday night when I finished, when I knocked off. It could be that Herman's Rockefeller's car, who's you've been looking for. This call came from a man named Craig Smith, who I believe was a truck driver or worker in the area. And the area was Wallen, about 80 kilometres from the Tullamarine Airport and in the opposite direction to Herman's house in East Malvern. Forensic police examination of the car discovered no bags, no phone and no signs of foul play. So that begged the question, where was all his stuff? There was a few bibs and bobs, a newspaper and a few other items, but where was his luggage? Where was all the gear they'd seen him with on the airport CCTV? And it really got police thinking again. Had this guy disappeared of his own accord? Had he manufactured this? Rumours and false sightings often complicate inquiries like this in real time. And indeed, that happened in Herman Rockefeller's case. It was still highly improbable that this guy had just left his Prius in Wallen and bailed on life after a great business trip. His life was seemingly happy he and his wife were proud that their daughter had recently been accepted into medical school. It just didn't make sense that this decent citizen, this good, God-fearing and honest man would vanish voluntarily. But all roads were leading nowhere at this point. But another call later this same day would have police and the Rockefeller family 
seriously raising their eyebrows and no longer scratching their heads. Another call came in, quite shockingly, from a woman who said she'd been having an on-again, off-again affair with Herman Rockefeller for the past 27 years. While she didn't really want to divulge the shadowy secret, she thought Herman's disappearance was infinitely more serious than keeping their affair a secret. So this was of great interest to police, obviously, and undoubtedly shocking and devastating to Vicky. This woman was named Liza Horsefall. Liza had dated Herman for a few years before he'd met Vicky. She was married at this time in 2010, had been for 20 years, and lived in nearby Brighton, another affluent suburb. It was sometimes years between her and Herman's meetings, but it was always more than dinner, and they'd pick right up where they left off last time when they saw each other. And while this made Herman look less than ideal in the police's eyes, it wasn't this aspect that raised eyebrows so much as it was hearing from Liza that Herman had another mobile phone, a secret phone, at least one, possibly more, and he told her he had these locked away in his house. This was news to the police and the Rockefeller family. And rightly, it prompted a further look through the Rockefeller residence, closer than police had examined to this point, trying to establish a precursor for Herman's disappearance. This was a very specific piece of information here. In the home office of the Rockefellers, police found in a locked drawer a small wallet of photos. These were not happy snaps of the family on a picnic either. Herman was in them, but his wife and his mistress were not. Other people were in them, and they were explicit to say the least. Police also located a snippet of a classified ad from a swingers magazine. They traced the advert back to the publisher of the Australian Contacts magazine, which contained a swingers club directory, noting details of clubs across Australia and New Zealand, such as Wet on Wellington and Brizzy Bangers, to name a few. The woman who ran the newspaper, her name was Danielle Eigel, and she confirmed this ad was from their paper and she'd published a number of classified ads for this gentleman over the years, 34 to be exact. She could tell it was him from the photo supplied. He occasionally used different names in these ads. As time went on, each of these ads became more and more flamboyant in the expression, noting that he, Herman, was a handsome ex-model and TV presenter, alongside even more explicit details surrounding sizes and activities, which we won't detail but leave to everyone's imaginations. Police went deeper and contacted a number of people associated with this unfurling secret life, and at the end of it, it was clear as mud. Herman Rockefeller liked to have sex with strangers, as many as he could, and no one in his everyday life knew about this. So naturally, this opened up a whole other avenue of possibilities and subsequent inquiries for police to look into. Now, they went back over the stuff found in Herman's car with a fresh set of eyes and a specific perspective. Some of this stuff might have had different meaning now. This newspaper they found, that was dated on the last day Herman had been seen, the 21st of January. A forensic officer was going through this tabloid again when they noticed an address scrolled down atop of one of the pages. They also determined that this address matched the last address keyed into Herman's GPS in his car. And this address was in the suburb of Hadfield in Melbourne's north. Hadfield's wedged between Pascoe Vale and Broadmeadows, not too far from the Tullamarine Airport. But it's a good half hour south from Wallen, where Herman's car was found, And East Malvern, where Herman lived, was a further 30 minutes south of Hadfield, certainly not on his way home, which 
socioeconomically would be a million dollars away from the blue-collar working-class Hadfield. So why had Herman Rockefeller keyed in this address? Police wanted to find that out. So they sent surveillance to Hadfield to watch the occupants while detectives awaited a search warrant. If you're looking for plump lips that last, you need to know about Juvederm Lip Fillers. With Juvederm Volbella XC and Juvederm Ultra XC, your lip look, whether it's subtle or bold, can last up to one full year with optimal treatment and no additional maintenance. Find a licensed specialist and see if it's right for you at Juvederm.com today. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Add fullness to lips in adults over 21 with Juvederm Volbella XC or Juvederm Ultra XC. Do not use if you have severe allergies or a history of severe allergic reactions, or if you're allergic to lidocaine or the proteins used in Juvederm. Tell your doctor if you have a history of scarring or taking medicines that decrease the body's immune response or that can prolong bleeding. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. As with all fillers, there's a rare risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. For full important safety information, visit juviderm.com. Switching gears here, Chloe, as we take some time to get to know a pair of characters pivotal to this unfurling tale. The owner of 125 South Street, Hadfield, I believe it was Unit 2 at this address, her name was Bernadette Denny. Police noted during initial surveillance she was a 41-year-old woman who looked a bit older than that. Bernadette had had a hard life to this point. She suffered from alcoholism, she was overweight, and things hadn't gone her way in terms of work and life in general. From age 10, she had been sexually abused. After high school, she'd also been in a bad car accident and suffered a number of injuries from this. She had an abusive long-term relationship with a guy named Rob. They had two daughters together and the alcoholism and subsequent weight gain really happened after this. She had a long road back to normality, but it was a daily struggle with the drinking and slipping back into old habits. She'd bought this place in South Street, Hadfield, close to her parents, a step in the right direction. She had no run-ins with the law. She had no firearms. There was nothing to police that was suspicious about Bernadette Denny other than the address link. So at first, this was a bit perplexing to police. Now, was there a number wrong, maybe? An incorrect street, perhaps? Was this whole thing a dead end? But then police spotted a short, stocky, bald man emerging from Bernadette's house. He was seemingly of European descent, a bit of an Uncle Fester look about him. He left and went to a laundromat in Hadfield. Police followed him, and when he arrived, they observed him carrying a large garbage bag into the laundromat. Maybe 45 minutes later, he left the coin laundry with the bag and he put it in the back seat of his car before trundling to the nearby Woolworths for some groceries. While he was in there, the police had a quick look in the car and saw a doona in the back seat. This is what he had laundered. Police checked the registration of the vehicle and it came back to a man named Mario Shembri and he had a violent assault on his record. So this certainly piqued police interest in learning a bit more about him. Mario Shembri was described as a man of little education or finesse. 
He was a tinkerer, a real handyman type guy, worked in all sorts of odd jobs, uh, rubbish removal, maintenance and the like. Although it appeared most of his work was off the books as he was largely unemployed for the most part, according to Centrelink. Mario was born in Malta on the 6th of July 1952. He was one of nine kids and his family came to Australia in 1954 from post-war Europe for stability and prosperity. When he was 21, Mario met his wife Christine. They would go on to have eight children, but sadly they lost their daughter named Tamara to meningococcal in 1990. She was just 16 months old. This caused quite a lot of grief and indeed sent Mario into a depression, which is understandable. Mario also at some stage decided to engage in a number of extramarital affairs. It was said that he had an insatiable appetite for women in addition to his wife. When Christine found out about this, she left Mario and took the kids. While he was relegated to living in a caravan up near his sister Doris's house in Wallen, Mario ended up moving down to Glenroy eventually and staying with some extended family. While here, he struck up a deal with a local man named Jack Godinger to use his backyard. Jack was a pensioner and had no use for the space, so he informally leased this out on a handshake to Mario. Mario then used it as a junkyard of sorts, accruing a bunch of scrap metal and car parts for him to tinker with and sell on for a few bucks. It was next door to Jack that Mario met Helen Battersby. Mario removed some rubbish for her that the local council wouldn't take. From there, they struck up a friendship which turned into a several-year relationship. In the end, they squabbled as couples do and grew apart and it didn't work out. Mario thought Helen was having affairs, which she wasn't. A bit of self-projecting from Mario there, perhaps. But this was the catalyst for their separation. Interestingly, Mario had suggested to Helen one time about having sex while watching another couple, to which she declined, not being into that kind of thing, but Mario never mentioned it again. But he would have those thoughts again, not long after meeting Bernadette Denny in 2009. Mario and his nephew were tending to a stray dog out on the street when they bumped into Bernadette and her two daughters. The pair struck up a conversation and things developed from there into a relationship. Mario would end up moving in with Bernadette, but her daughters and Mario didn't get along. He was very strict, old school in his approach. This caused a lot of disharmony in the house, and ultimately what happened is Bernadette's daughters moved out to live with their grandparents. From here, Mario and Bernadette were free to explore the sexual fantasies they'd both been having. In July of 2009, they decided to engage a sex worker. Her name was Tessa, for the purposes of having a threesome. They met at the Formula One hotel in Campbellfield and paid Tessa $1,200 for two hours. At first, relations were between Tessa and Bernadette, but when Mario decided he wanted to get involved, Bernadette got upset, saying that she thought this whole thing was just for her and that he was going to watch. So that's how it played out. Mario didn't engage from this point on. Bernadette contacted Tessa a number of times after this, clearly quite enamoured with her and the experience. Mario too had enjoyed what he'd seen, and the pair were keen to take things further. In October, they went to the adult superstore Sexyland and bought a copy of Australian Contacts magazine. Their intention was to find another couple now with whom they could swing. One classified in particular caught their attention. It read, Melbourne. Attractive, sexy, uninhibited, fun-loving couple who enjoy engaging but safe sex life. Swing together and independently in an open relationship. We're in our late 30s. 
can meet during the daytimes and discretion is assured. No single males, please. All replied answered. Bernadette text messaged the guy whose name was Andy Kingston. Andy had a wife named Jenny. She was more into threesomes but willing to try the foursome, Andy said. They spoke a few more times after this, general chit-chat about kids and life, etc., and more specifically about sexual things they were into. Bernadette thought Andy and his wife had done quite a lot and were quite experienced. Mario spoke to Andy too after this, and they were all keen to proceed further and arrange a meeting. Andy called Bernadette and Mario a number of times after this. He was quite persistent, really, and this was quite a turn-on for the pair, feeling like they were being chased, so to speak. In December of 2009, Andy visited Mario and Bernadette at Bernadette's home in Hadfield. It was during the day and he was by himself. His wife Jenny couldn't make it on this first meeting, but she'd come along to the next. Despite this, the meeting went well anyway, because Andy and Bernadette ended up having sex in the lounge room with Mario watching. Andy tried to get Mario involved at first, but he didn't want to take part without Jenny there, so he just observed. Half an hour later, and Andy had showered and left, with the plan laid out that Mario was to meet him and his wife, or sex partner as he was now referring to her, someplace soon, so Andy could return the favour. He left with a promise of sending some photos of Jenny through. But these photos of Jenny never came. Neither did the proposed meeting. They lined up a date and time, then Jenny got bronchitis, so it had to be postponed. More excuses followed and Mario and Bernadette began to think they'd been had. Mario in particular felt like he'd been taken for a fool and Bernadette felt quite used and dirty about the whole thing. So we have two understandably frustrated people here and another guy who's seemingly taken them for fools in order to satisfy his urges. But where do the tales of Bernadette Denny and Mario Shembri intersect with that of Herman Rockefeller? the missing millionaire we discussed in the first part of this story. Well, they already had. And here's the twist you may or may not have pieced together by this point. Andy Kingston was Herman Rockefeller. This was one of the many names Herman had used when placing the earlier mentioned classified ads. He'd started out using basic derivatives like Herman Rock, but moved on to the likes of John Robertson, settling in recent times on the moniker of Andy Kingston. No one knew about the secret life of Herman Rockefeller. Backing up a few days to the 21st of January when Herman was flying home from New South Wales and would be last seen exiting Tullamarine Airport, retracing this story as police were starting to fill in a few gaps now. Herman had done his four-day business trip with his brother Robert. He'd caught the 4.50pm flight from Newcastle to Brisbane. This was a Virgin Blue flight. He'd read some financial statements on the trip and read a crime thriller called Last Man Standing, and he'd accidentally left his glasses at the Brisbane airport. While waiting for his connecting flight, Herman got out one of his secret phones, he had five of these it had turned out, and messaged Bernadette Denny, confirming their rendezvous. Bernadette and Mario hoped he might come through with the goods this time, that Jenny might come along, and Herman scrawled their address down in his newspaper next to the Sudoku puzzle he'd been doing. Then, off his normal phone, he texted his wife Vicky at 6.35pm, 
explaining the plane was running an hour late, which was a lie, so he could buy himself enough time to go to Hadfield and have sex with Bernadette and Mario. And that's where he headed upon leaving Tullamarine, the details of which we covered earlier. But Bernadette Denny and Mario Shembri didn't know he was the multi-millionaire property tycoon Herman Rockefeller. They just thought he was Andy Kingston, the swinger who hadn't brought his own wife along to the party as yet. What had transpired between them and Herman Rockefeller would come out during police interviews. For now, though, police had enough to arrest the pair and bring them in for questioning. Mario, under surveillance at his mate's place in Glenroy, was arrested while tinkering under the hood of his car. At the same time, police knocked on Bernadette Denny's house in Hadfield and arrested her. Then they searched the place. Well, overnight, police raided this property that you can see behind me, a townhouse in Hadfield, uh, where they took uh, extreme time to get as much information as they possibly could. They took fingerprints, the forensics team were in, they were searching the house inside and out. There are also reports that two people were taken away for questioning, but we haven't been able to confirm that with police. In fact, uh, police aren't saying much at all about what happened here, not even that if it had any connection with the disappearance of the Melbourne businessman Herman Rockefeller. Uh, They're being very tight-lipped at the moment. Hadfield is uh, about 15 uh, minutes north of Melbourne's central business district and it's only about 15 minutes away from here that you can get to Tullmarine Airport. Now, that is the last place that uh, Mr Rockefeller was seen alive. He left the long-term car park, he drove out and that was the last anyone saw or heard of him and then on Monday his car was found at a place called Balan, which is about 40 minutes north of Melbourne. He certainly, uh, it seems, did not take his usual route home. He's a 52-year-old man who seems to be doing quite well with his business. He uh, works very closely with his brother. In fact, he was returning from a trip to Sydney and Newcastle. Uh, That's why he flew back into the airport. Uh, It's a very low-key family. They have a very famous name, but they've made it very clear that they are not linked at all to the uh, Rockefellers of New York. Uh, When he disappeared, his uh, family were considerably distraught. They made a public plea for information, and they, they could not understand why he hadn't called, why he disappeared. They could not make any sense of it at all. They said he's a very unassuming, family-loving man and they were at a loss to explain what had happened. So the police were looking for links to Herman inside the house and they'd found a smear of blood on the tiles in the kitchen, blood on the couch and some blood in the garage. But was it Herman's? Detectives Peter Towner, Tim Bell and Sharon Bell interviewed Mario and Bernadette. Mario offered no comment throughout his entire interview and Bernadette said she only knew Herman Rockefeller through the media reports of his disappearance. That was technically true as she knew him as Andy Kingston, but still, she knew what had happened to the man as she was there. After some resistance to begin with, she told her version of events. Herman had arrived at their place in the evening of January 21st. She covered the backstory, how they met before, had sex, and he hadn't brought his partner along. They were hoping that he had this time, but he hadn't. Yet when he came in, he apparently still wanted to have sex with Bernadette and proceeded to grope her body and breasts. Mario wasn't too pleased with this display and told him as much. Bernadette and Mario asked where his wife was, sex partner Herman corrected, and he fumbled around for a photo of her. When he couldn't produce one, things escalated. Herman was still trying it on with Bernadette, 
and Mario told him to keep his fucking hands off her. Bernadette then slapped Herman, to which he replied with a smirk that he liked feisty women. The argument turned to push, push turned to shove, and then a full-on fist fight. Mario's anger, that pent-up rage he displayed when he assaulted someone previously, came front and centre. He was fuming that Herman, or Kingston as they knew him at this point, had welched on his promise and gotten the better of him. As the fight raged on, they ended up in the garage. Bernadette and Mario were both hitting Herman. He was fighting back, allegedly kicking Bernadette in the shin as he and Mario threw punches at one another. Then Mario struck Herman a decent one and he fell back and hit his head. According to them, he was alright one moment, then he simply collapsed. The pair went back inside, sure that he was still breathing in the garage, albeit dazed on the ground. They were in shock as to what had happened. It had simply gone too far. Bernadette seemed to think that he was still alive when they put Herman in the boot of their car and drove him out to Heathcote in the middle of the night. With the plan to dump him in the middle of nowhere, she told police as much and they formed the impression that Herman Rockefeller could still be out there in the wilderness, fighting hard to survive. He was fit, as we said earlier. The 52-year-old ran and worked out regularly. He had a good, strong constitution so it was certainly possible he'd fallen and hurt himself out there, maybe gone down one of the old mine shafts. Police had to search and find out. This is Nine News with Peter Hitchener. First, the Herman Rockefeller mystery. The investigation has switched to Heathcote in central Victoria. Brett McLeod is there. What can you tell us, Brett? Peter, I'm just at the Heathcote Greytown National Park where police are being supplemented by members of the SES in their search. And in there are literally hundreds of abandoned mine shafts dating back to the 19th century. The police helicopter was involved as well as those on the ground. And it's uh, in there that they fear they may find Mr Rockefeller's body. As police searched, Mario Shembri continued to offer up no comment. He was described as surly and uncooperative. Police ended up talking with Mario's lawyer who had come in, the well-known Rob Starry, and they had convinced him to talk to Mario about giving up some information about Herman's whereabouts, that it might help him with his sentencing. Mario decided to heed Starry's advice and open up to detectives. He told them to call off the search, that Herman wasn't in Heathcote, he was dead. In short, there'd been some argy-bargy the night he came around and that Herman couldn't match his anger. He had the upper hand in that department and when it came to blows, Herman ended up dead in the garage, but it was an accident, an accident that went too far. They had driven Herman to Heathcote, but they didn't dump him. They drove him back home and put his body in the garage, where he then died. When they were sure he was dead, plans shifted into covering their tracks. Bernadette knew they had to find his phone. She noticed the Prius outside, being foreign to the area, took Herman's key from his body, found his mobile and turned it off. This was his normal everyday phone that Vicky had been calling. It had been the days after, as Herman lay dead in their garage, that Bernadette and Mario would learn that Andy Kingston was Herman Rockefeller when the media storm around his disappearance swarmed the headlines. Neighbours in Hadfield had seen what they now knew to be Herman's car in the streets and they saw Mario tow it away. We know he eventually dumped it up in Wallen, but they still had Herman's body in their garage. What to do with that? And this is where things get even more twisted. Heads up, folks. Mario and Bernadette then went to Bunnings Warehouse, but not for a humble sausage sizzle. No, 
They bought an Ozito chainsaw, which CCTV showed Mario wielding, testing. They bought coveralls, drop sheets and masks as well. Mario then proceeded to dismember Herman's body upon returning home to Hadfield using the Ozito chainsaw. He then bagged up the body parts and took them to Jack Gottinger's in Glenroy and began incinerating the remains in a 44-gallon drum outside. He also disposed of Herman's personal effects, bag, computer, luggage, phones, etc., in this drum inferno. Bernadette wasn't sure of all this. She apparently hadn't been involved in the dismemberment and disposal. She couldn't stomach it, and Mario thought he couldn't either, but he had gone through with it in an effort to not get caught. Now, you'd be forgiven for thinking, geez Louise, wouldn't you smell that in a suburban neighbourhood? Well, neighbours did. In fact, they called it in and the fire brigade attended the Glenroy address on the 25th when Mario started burning the body. This was incidentally on Herman's 52nd birthday too. Helen Battersby, Mario's ex, she phoned it in, saying it stunk like car tyres, but he shouldn't be burning off as it was a total fire ban. Another neighbour, Robin O'Brien, she called it in too, noting that she couldn't stand the stench and there was no way it was rubber. It was far too strong. The MFB attended and thought Mario was a recent immigrant and spoke English as his second language. They told him to put it out, said he couldn't have it going, and then he doused it with a hose. As far as they were concerned, that was the end of it. But Mario kept burning the remains and bit by bit disposed of the bags of charred remnants around the surrounding suburbs in dumpsters and large waste bins. Mario and Bernadette were both charged with murder at this point, the detectives undoubtedly shocked by what they had heard, but not half as shocked as I reckon the Rockefeller family would have been to hear of the devastating way in which their husband, father and brother had died. This was off the back of hearing about the secret life of his and the slither of hope they undoubtedly were holding on to that he might still be alive. That hope was now gone. Police were left with the unenviable task of further forensic examinations after this to confirm the version of events they'd been told. Forensic pathologist Melissa Baker was at first unable to confirm the burnt remains found in Jack Godinger's backyard were indeed Herman Rockefellers. They were just so badly burnt and incomplete and they were unable to discern any fragments with certainty. But they caught a lucky break when examining the tow truck that Mario Shembri had used to tow away Herman's Prius. They discovered under the seat another small bag of charred remains. And from this, they found discernible tooth and jawline and were able to conclude that this was highly likely to be Herman Rockefeller. They then also obtained tissue from the chainsaw blade, which later came back as a match with Herman's DNA profile. Bernadette and Mario's charges were later downgraded from murder to manslaughter due to them not intending to murder Herman Rockefeller but recklessly causing his death by their actions. Now, we could go through their pleas and court appearance details here, Chloe, or we could listen to Darren Hinch talk about it on his 3AW Drive program, which was airing at the time of this case. We always like to weave in a bit of Hinch where we can, as listeners will know, Here's Darren talking with court reporter Kate Osborne about their pleas and a breakdown summary of how events transpired. Okay, want well, to move on to that story that you heard on the news about the what's to be known as the Rockefeller case, Herman Rockefeller, of course, who, who died under controversial circumstances and after and there was a big manhunt for him before his body was found or the remains were found. On the line now, there's a court sequel today, Channel 7 court reporter Kate Osborne. Good afternoon. 
Good afternoon, Darren. So the, the, the both the, the, the two um, the two people who were originally charged with the, the murder of Herman Rockefeller, and now that charge has been reduced to manslaughter, and they have pleaded guilty. That's right, Darren. The last time the pair appeared in court, the prosecution said the discussions had been taking place. Taking place after all, um, they had made admissions right from the start that they were involved. So it was just a. It, they were always going to plead guilty. It was just a matter. Um, as to what, but this afternoon, or this morning, sorry, yes, Bernard, actually no, it was this afternoon, Bernadette, Denny and Mario Shembri both pleaded guilty to one count of manslaughter. Okay, now in this, in the, in the, we do know that, uh, I presume this has also come, doesn't just come out in court yet or not, but uh, after he left Melbourne Airport and disappeared, he went under his alias, that he, uh, what do you call himself, uh, Andy Kingston. Andy Kingston. He went to this couple's, they were in a, some sort of um, bondage and uh, group sex uh, organisation. Uh, he went to their place and there was some, some um, f uh, argument and fight broke out. Yeah, that, that seems to be the case. I mean, in fact, this is the first time that we've actually heard anything official in this case. Everything else that we've heard about it um, has basically been through the newspapers, um, through leaks to reporters, etc. But this is the first time we've actually um, heard the details and we've heard, um, we've got records of interview from both Denny and Shembury. So we can hear what happened in their own words. Basically what um, Bernadette Denny told police is that um, she... She and Shembury decided that they were interested in uh, giving swinging a go. They bought a magazine and, and she answered an ad that Rockefeller had placed under the name of Andy Kingston. She said that they actually met up once before, um, several weeks before Rockefeller was killed, um, and that she had had sex with Rockefeller while Shembury watched. This is all, it's all very grubby. Mm. Um, but then on this particular day, um, Rockefeller had uh, told his wife that his flight had been delayed by an hour to give himself an extra hour before he went home. Instead, he went to their house, um, but she said that he had been leading them along to um, making them think that he, in fact, had a wife or a, um, a, a partner. partner of some kind that was interested in swinging as well, but he never actually produced her. He made excuses, said she had bronchitis, etc., um, and that... Um, he would show them a photo but didn't have one there, etc. And she said that um, she was just sick of him. This is Denny. She was just sick of him lying and it was making her feel dirty. So on this occasion, she basically knocked him back and that's when a fight broke out. Um, it sort of spilled from the house into the garage and then all of a sudden Rockefeller just collapsed and that was it, basically. So I, I imagine that is why... Um, because it doesn't seem that there's actual premeditation there. I imagine that is why the prosecution accepted yep. the, the, the manslaughter. manslaughter. Yeah, the interesting thing was, remember at the time of the hunt that uh, police uh, converged on Heathcote, um, but it, it now turns out apparently that they, that, uh, that they put the critically ill Mr Rockefeller into their car and drove him out to, uh, to Heathcote, where, they would, where one of them knew the area pretty well, uh, but then decided uh, against dumping him there and took him back into somewhere into town. And, of course, then uh, after three days after he disappeared, his wife reported to the police and became a major news story. Mm. Obviously, uh, the, they, then, they then panicked. Yes, in fact, um, Danny says how they panicked. And then in the um, police summary, there's lots of details about their movements, taking him here, taking him there, um, them, about them going to Bunnings and buying all sorts of uh, sort of uh, garbage bags and um, chainsaws and uh, or surgical masks, etc. And then Danny actually describes um, when, um, once they finally decided that they would dismember Mr Rockefeller's body, she just... Um, she says that she was in the house and she could hear it. It made her feel sick. Uh, Shembury says that she was vomiting and that he didn't think that he had 
excuse the language, he didn't think he had the balls to cut him up, but he was, and that it would almost made him sick, but he knew he had to be strong and get it done. It's all very disturbing, disturbing information. Yeah, and there was, of course, one uh, one other red herring because there was a woman who had a long-standing relationship with Rockefeller because uh, she uh, she um, uh, went looking for him uh, after his car was found near Gordon, and I think uh, stuck up a uh, a note to him in one of the local places saying, you know, Herman, I've been on my own or something like that. So that sent the police down a uh, a wrong rabbit hole at one stage. Yeah, well, I'm not sure if it's the same woman, but there was a woman that had been in a relationship with. Um, Herman, who said that he had actually asked her um, if she wanted to become involved in a threesome and she um, had refused and it hadn't been raised again. But it seems that since he went so far as to place the ad in the the magazine that um, this was something um, that he was interested in and that Denny says that um, he pursued the couple um, sort of quite enthusiastically. Yeah, and of course he had, at one stage I think it came out, he had five mobile phones, so he was leading a, a double or triple life. That's right, and this must be all terribly um, upsetting oh, for the family. For the the family. statement from his wife says that he was not even the kind of person that um, wouldn't, he wouldn't even go for a drink without letting the family know, um, and she just says how worried sick she was about it. So to hear all this must be just terrible for the family. Yeah. All right, Kate, thanks, I'd appreciate it. Thank you. Bye now. Channel 7 court reporter Kate Osborne. A few things we wanted to read now directly from a Sydney Morning Herald article on the sentencing. Justice Forrest accepted that Mr Rockefeller's death arose spontaneously because the couple believed he was trying to take advantage of them. But, he said, without Shembury's explosive loss of control, the offence would not have happened. Both pleaded guilty to manslaughter. Justice Forrest said that it was not the court's role to pass judgment on Mr Rockefeller's, Denny's and Shembury's life choices. The upshot of the choices you made, however, is that the scene was set for the totally unnecessary death of a man, he said. His parents, wife, children, they're all devastated. The harm that you have caused them is profound. They'll always carry some legacy of it, and so will you. The judge said that while Denny's overall moral culpability was less than Chembury's, it was still considerable. Mario Chembury received a sentence of nine years with a seven-year minimum, He was released in 2018 and deported back to Malta, according to news reports. Bernadette Denny received a seven-year sentence with a five-year minimum. Vicky Rockefeller appeared emotionless during the hearing. A psychological report read in court said the trauma of the events constituted a life sentence for her. She is isolated, defined by her husband's death, horrendous disposal of his body and the discovery of his secret life, it said. She did not comment to reporters. The limelight didn't escape the Rockefeller family since this time, though. Not only did Vicky and their two children have to deal with this unknown life of their husband and father being aired continuously in the media, but their life without him would have been grief-stricken and extremely different to what they'd known. So it would have been, and probably still is, very difficult for them to deal with. They also had Herman's estate to wrangle. He'd not left a will, and it was quite an extensive estate, as we can probably gather. Properties in Robe, South Australia, New Zealand, business loans and money owing all over the shop. It took some time for Vicky Rockefeller to actually obtain the estate and divide it between her children. Liza Horsfall, Herman's mistress, received a six-figure payout from the estate. She later commented words to the effect that her and Herman were soulmates, that he was unhappy at home, and even that Vicky knew about their relationship which contradicts earlier information we heard about this, 
but it was in the notes, so we'll point it out. Herman's overall estate to be divided was said to be over $14 million. This didn't include his entire net worth. Different things such as the family home and other assets were in Vicky's name and different business entity names, etc. So I gather it wasn't a straightforward black and white process. But that's it when it comes to this seedy, twisting tale and the unfortunate death of Herman Rockefeller. Yeah, okay, so my thoughts on this. There are a lot of ways that having a secret life that involved having sex with multiple partners who were strangers could go wrong, but I'm not sure that this would be high on many people's concern list. Sure, having sex with multiple people you don't know is higher risk than some other lifestyles, I'd imagine, but... I'm sure it happens often without people dying. An encounter would have to go pretty wrong for someone to wind up dead. Herman was the victim of pissing off the wrong person and the cost was his life. I think the thing that gets me about this case too is the media reporting on it after it all happened and how hard that would have been for Herman's family. You know, headings like slain swinger, sex romps and secrets would have made the processing everything just that much harder. I hope at this point his family have been able to move on and that's my thoughts on this one. What are yours, Sean? Yeah, I feel very sorry for Herman's family, particularly Vicky. You know, what was interesting to me firstly was Herman's motivations. I mean, now obviously the man didn't deserve to die and certainly not have his body handled the way it was afterwards. You know, if it was a genuine escalation and accident, you know, the leap to that disposal method and cover-up is is difficult to understand. But, you know... Affairs aren't uncommon. You know, they're not good for anyone involved. Ultimately, they're a short-term sort of hit and, you know, a whole lot of long-term pain. But they do happen, and for years, as we saw in this case. But um, what was strange to me was his mistress not even knowing about the the swinging, this sexual fantasy that Herman had. You know, money was no object for Herman. He could have clearly secured professional services, but he chose not to. And to me, that says it was the escapism of it all, that letting go of who he was, um, you know, becoming someone else in this scenario. He wasn't the responsible sort of millionaire, church-going family man. You know, he got to be someone else, Andy Kingston, John Robertson, whatever, the ex-model TV presenter. And again, you know, he didn't deserve what he got. But, uh, you know, like you said, Chloe, he he pissed off the wrong person or people, uh, unfortunately, and that's what happened. It's certainly an intriguing story. Um, but, you know, but the, at the end of it all, I just can't help but feel sorry for uh, all of those affected by the tragedy. So that's it for me. Yes. Well, on that note, let's move on to our happy thoughts. Um, what's yours this week? I bought a new typewriter. Oh, that's exciting. Does that's that mean you've thought. gone completely um, off the grid now? No, no, I can't. <laughs> <laughs> as much as I would like to. Um, no, but I've just, uh, I've, I've got a, I have a couple. I have an electronic one and one manual one, yep. but I've bought a Another manual one being um, a bit intrigued by them recently, so it's uh, it's a bit of a skill on its own, you know, using mm. the, the typewriter. It's not particularly easy to do if, yeah, it takes a little while to get used to it. So mm. I've just been really getting into the manual typewriters and bought myself a new one. Well, I say a new one. It's an old one. It's like a 70s one, but um, it's pretty cool. So I will get that um, when it arrives and uh, it should be fun times. Nice. Um. I just thought to myself today that I need to start keeping a track of my happy thoughts, especially in this tiny world that I'm living in at the moment because I'm really worried I'm going to reuse them and I can't remember if I have done this one or not because I've been talking to a lot of people about it, but I'm really (laughs) into roasted cabbage at the moment. 
And before you turn your nose <laughs> up at it, it's actually the best. I have gone most of my adult life thinking I hate cabbage, but I learned I just hate chow ming. <laughs> well, I hate the packet mix version of chow ming that every white Australian family <laughs> made growing up through the 90s. Um, and it's not cabbage's fault. So I have a really good recipe for roasting cabbage in the oven and it is honestly delicious. I've converted my husband to it and, you know, what have we got if we haven't got food right now? <laughs> That's it. Yeah. We've had a quite a bit of sauerkraut this week, actually. We we have ah. that a bit. Um, so, um, yeah, that, that goes all right. So let's uh, we'll swap recipes right, <laughs> yeah. after this. Can we get a... <laughs> <laughs> Talk cabbage. <laughs> <laughs> Um, if you want to get in touch, you can email us at truebluecrime at gmail.com. You can join our Facebook group, which is called True Blue Crime Podcast, and you can find us on Instagram by searching True Blue Crime. If you'd like to support the show, you can head over to our Patreon page. The link is in the show notes for $5 per month. You can support the current free content we make on the main feed and get our bonus monthly Blue Label episodes. Or you can give us a one-off donation on the new supporter feature. Uh, we had a couple this week and a quick shout-out to Bunts and DMH for their generous donations and kind words. Thanks very much, guys. That's it for us this week, and we'll be with you all again next time. Thanks, everyone. Bye. Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com.